Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Following Jesus. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you here. How many of you, by show of hands, like to play board games? Monopoly, Risk, Clue, Candyland, anybody Candyland? Ah, there's a couple. Right, shoots and Ladders. Well, how many of you have heard of the game called Going to Jerusalem? Anybody? One. Were you at the first service? <laughs> It's an actual game. It was released in the 1950s, the mid-1950s, by Parker's Brothers. And, and it was a game, uh, honestly, for Christian families to play with their kids at home. And you're going to see a picture of what it looked like right up here. A literal game, and uh, it's just an amazing uh, thing. A Bible game based on the New Testament. So uh, Lee Eklov said he grew up playing this game, and he writes, you know, you're playing piece wasn't a top hat or a Scotty dog like in Monopoly. Um, you know, that was worldly. In going to Jerusalem, you got to be a real disciple. You're, you were represented by a little plastic man with a, a robe and a beard and sandals and a staff. And he said, in order to move across the board, you looked up answers to questions and a little black New Testament provided by the game. He says, I remember you always started in Bethlehem. And you made stops at the Mount of Olives, at Bethsaida, at Capernaum, at the Sea of Galilee, and Nazareth, and Bethany. And if you rolled your dice well, you went all the way to the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And that's where the game stopped. No crucifixion, no resurrection. Nothing bad in the game. There were no demon-possessed people. There were no contentious Pharisees. It only had the nice stories. It was a safe adventure, particularly for a Christian family to play on a Sunday afternoon. He said, as I played that game, it never occurred to me that while leaning over the card table and jiggling the dice in my hand, that traveling with Jesus wasn't meant for plastic disciples who looked up verses in a little black Bible. If you're going to walk with Jesus as his disciple in this world, you may need to change your expectations because Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to look at the non-negotiable activities, you know, things that followers of Jesus do, that, that Jesus taught and commanded. And we're going to see that unlike this easy version of following Jesus in the board game, going to Jerusalem, following Jesus sometimes is filled with challenges and difficulties, not just from what the world dumps on us, but, but what Jesus tells us to do. We're going to look at some of the hard sayings of Jesus and, and really take them to heart for ourselves. This is, uh, 
something that we're going to see revealed in what he teaches and what he commanded. So we're going to start with a statement that Jesus made to his disciples. And he actually said it publicly to a crowd of people that included both those who were believers and those who weren't believers. And it's from the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible or if you have uh, your phone app to look it up, it's also going to be on the screen. But, but Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. When Jesus made that statement, he started with the, he started with the word if. If. If anyone wants to be my disciple. When Jesus made that statement, he was saying, listen, there's freedom. Whoever wants to be my disciple, you can decide if you want to or if you don't. And knowing that, he didn't sugarcoat what he meant when he said to be my follower. He said three things, and those three things are, are hard for us to hear. And so I want us to unpack them this morning. The first thing he said was this, deny yourselves. Deny yourself. Now, what does that phrase really mean? Uh, Greg Ogden has written a book called Discipleship Essentials, and in that book, he unpacks this. He says, to deny yourself is to say, I do not know the person. So denying yourself may involve denying things, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. Neither does it mean denying your self-worth. It doesn't mean denying your feelings. It doesn't mean denying your happiness. It doesn't mean denying your brains. He says, to deny yourself means to deny yourself lordship to deny yourself lordship in other words to reject the demands of the god who is me the god who is you to refuse to obey the claims of the god who is you a decisive no saying i do not know lord me and i do not bow down to him or her anymore Jesus calls us to say no to ourselves and our lordship over ourselves, and he calls us to say yes to him. Just deny yourself. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, take up your cross. Now let's discuss the meaning of that phrase because this phrase has also been misunderstood and misapplied. Many people use it to refer to enduring an illness or a disability or a negative experience, or a bothersome person. You know, maybe you've said, this is my cross to bear. Anybody said? Anybody ever said that? Yeah. Or you've heard somebody say that. But Jesus' words mean much more than that. Jesus' statement, when he said that to a first century crowd, must have sounded repugnant to them and to the disciples. Because that phrase, take up your cross, would create in their minds a picture of a criminal force to carry the cross beam on which he would be publicly crucified, executed. Capital punishment. A criminal picked up his cross only after receiving the sentence of death. When a criminal carried the cross to the streets for all practical purposes, he was a dead man walking. Jesus calls his followers to think of themselves as already dead, 
to bury all of their earthly hopes and dreams and to bury the plans and agendas we have made for ourselves and trust that he will either resurrect our dreams or replace them with dreams and plans of his own. Now, this is a hard saying, but it's a liberating saying. Because human bondage in all of its form is the result of us being the gods of our own lives. Freedom comes when we lay down the ill-gotten false crown, when we say no, when we live as though the gods who are us have already died. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Now, you think I'm going to say follow me is the next phrase, but it's not. It's lose your life. Lose your life because in verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, herein lies the paradox. We finally find ourselves when we lose ourselves for Jesus' sake. And how do we lose our lives for him? By investing all that we are and have for him, in, for him and for his gospel. By saying to him, here is my home, here is my checkbook, here are all my talents and my gifts, here is my brain, here is my heart, here are my hands, my feet, my mouth. It's all yours, Lord. Use it to glorify yourself and further your purposes on earth. Now, according to the world, this is a risky thing to pray but in the end of time, history will prove to us what really mattered. And nothing mattered except knowing Jesus and being a part of his kingdom. This is what Jesus says it means to follow him. It's about recognizing that we give ourselves up for him. And when I think about that, I reflect on what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. If you've ever read anything of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've probably been moved because he was a pastor uh, in the 1940s. He was executed for committing treason against uh, Hitler. He wrote an amazing small book called The, the Cost of Discipleship. And, and I'm going to quote something that he said here because he talked about cheap grace. And here's the deal. In our culture today, in, in, in Christian culture today, we have cheapened grace because we're really concerned really about getting to heaven. We're concerned about, you know, being saved for eternal life, but we don't really think about what that grace cost Jesus and in turn what that means to be a follower of Jesus because he's not just our Savior. He's our Lord. So listen to what Bonhoeffer says. The cost of discipleship, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in our lives. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a person will pluck out the eye which causes him or her to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows Jesus. 
following Jesus is costly. While he came to save us and be our Savior, he also came to be our Lord, the one we follow and obey. That's why I said Jesus gives us commands. This morning we're going to look at some of the commands, some of the sayings of Jesus, his very own words to his followers that are recorded in the Gospels. And as we look at those areas where Jesus speaks to us, we realize that those are non-negotiable traits, activities, disciplines for followers of Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. I'm going to give you a word. It's relationship relationship. Jesus invites everybody in the world into a relationship with him. In the book of Revelation, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus speaks. And in chapter three, he talks and he, to churches, some of the churches that are existing in the known world at that time. And as he speaks to them, he, he speaks to them from his heart about what he wants from them. Now, again, remember, he's speaking to churches. So he's speaking to people who have said, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. The scripture that I'm going to be reading is, was written to believers, but it also can speak to people that haven't come to know Jesus yet because Jesus is inviting all of us, those who believe and those who don't believe, into a relationship with him. So chapter 3, verse 20. Here I stand. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's an invitation to a relationship. It's an invitation to invite Jesus into your home. In other words, into your life, to sit down at the table of your life and have a conversation, to be in relationship with him. Now, remember I said Jesus wrote this to Christians. He wrote it uh, to seven different churches, and this specific letter was to the church in Laodicea. The church in Laodicea was a church that Jesus spoke these words to a little earlier in chapter 3. He said this to these followers of Jesus. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of your mouth. Now, using that image of cold water, and think about it. If this was lukewarm, it wouldn't be refreshing. You know, when you, when you want a, a glass of refreshing water, you want it to be cold. On, on the other hand, if, if you're cooking and you're going to make soup or, or you're going to make some tea or, or some type of warm beverage, you want it to be hot. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't like lukewarm coffee. You know, he's saying, listen, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And this is what he's saying to this. He says, listen. You're just going through the motions. I, I'm just a convenience to you. And when I'm inconvenient to you, you ignore me. When I'm convenient in your life, then you let me in. But otherwise, you drift away. You're not faithful. You're not obedient. They had a casual relationship with Jesus. When it was convenient, they followed. When it was inconvenient, they didn't follow. When it was convenient, they talked about Jesus to other people. When it was inconvenient, when they may be embarrassed, they didn't talk about the importance of Jesus in their life. They're faithful when it worked into their lifestyle, and Jesus was calling them on it. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. 
Look, Jesus invites all of us into a relationship with him. And he wants us to know him and to follow him. And he wants a relationship with you that is growing and that is thriving. So what are you doing to pursue a relationship with Jesus? Think about this. You know, we all have relationships with people. When you want to have a relationship with somebody, you communicate with them. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, Clark, I understand I have a relationship with a person I can see and that I can hold their hand or, you know, give them a pat on the back. But, but I can't see Jesus and I can't touch him. How can I have a relationship with him? Look, if you've experienced that, it's normal. We all experience that at some point in our relationship with Jesus. But he is constantly speaking to you. And speaking to me. He's speaking to all of us. He's speaking to us through his word, through scripture. Every time we read it, he speaks to us. And he's speaking to us constantly through the Holy Spirit. We have to tune our ears to hear. We have to tune our eyes to read what he's spoken to us. And we have to take in what he's saying to us. And we need to communicate back. We need to communicate back. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, Clark, you know, having a daily quiet time, getting up early in the morning, sitting in a quiet place, reading my Bible and praying, just doesn't work for me. I'm not wired that way. You know what? That's okay. There's no prescriptive way where you're supposed to have time with God. The reality is you need to let him speak to you through his word and through the Holy Spirit and sometimes through other believers. And you need to speak to him. And, and you know, that can happen when you're on a walk. You can walk and talk with Jesus. You know, there, there's so much technology available to us that, that we don't just have to open up a physical Bible, a book, and read and let God speak to us. You can listen to the Bible. There's so many applications that you can do that on. If you've got the Bible app on your phone, you may not have known this, but you can plug your earphones into your phone and you can let the chapters be read to you. While you walk and talk to Jesus, you can let him talk back to you through Scripture. There's thousands of online Bible plans. You can even have them emailed to you on a daily basis. So look, there's no excuse for us not to be listening to what the Lord wants to say to us through God's word, except willingness. Willingness. If you're going to have a relationship with another person, you're going to have to work on it. There will be times when it just seems to click, but there'll be times when you're going to have to work on it. And your relationship with Jesus is no different. You're going to have to commit yourself to being in a relationship. Commit yourself to communicating. Commit yourself to listening as he speaks to you. Will you do whatever it takes to maintain that relationship? Will you, will you, will you seek out his word and let him speak to you in whatever form works for you? Will you spend time talking to him. You know, the other day, I'll be candid with you, it just didn't seem, sitting down and, and having my quiet time in the usual chair, in the usual way, didn't seem right. Just didn't, it wasn't working for me. So I just went out on our porch, had a cup of hot tea, and I just stood out and looked out into the woods. I talked to Jesus. There's no prescriptive way. But we just need to do it. We need to do it. Talk with him every day. So let's move from relationship to a similar topic, uh, a topic that Jesus speaks about. And he gives a command about worship. 
When Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, Satan came to him the last time, and this is what he tempted him. He, he, he tempted Jesus to bow down to him and worship him. And as in all the other temptations, he quotes God's word to him, and he says this, For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God desires our worship. And that's clear both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When, when God gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments were about worship. They're about worshiping God. Let me remind you of what those four commandments are. The first one, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an image and bow down to it and worship it. The third one, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the fourth one, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God was saying, put me first. Don't worship anything else, anyone else. Put me first. Don't make any other gods in your life, ones that you physically make or ones that you mentally make. And he says, honor my name because my name is holy. Think about that. We live in a culture where OMG is standard operating vocabulary, but it dishonors God. He says, remember the Sabbath because I created the Sabbath for you so you could worship me, so you could rest. You need rest. He did that all of this for us so that we could have a relationship with him, so we could worship him. And Jesus went right on with this. In the Gospels, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And this is what he says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's basically saying, listen, worship God with all that you are. He created you that way. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to be in the primary position in your life where he is the recipient of your love and your honor and your respect with all that you do and say. So what does worshiping the Lord look like? It looks like putting him in the primary spot in your life. It looks like Deciding how you're going to live your life based on your relationship with God. It looks like dedicating your waking and your sleeping, your going and your coming to God. Whatever you do, recognizing that you can do it for God. The Apostle Paul says, don't work for people. Do your work as if you're working for God Almighty. He's saying, listen, all of your life is worship if you recognize that. But what gets in the way? What do you make a God in your life? Maybe it's work. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's sleep. Maybe it's your stuff. Maybe it's your retirement fund. How do you honor God? Do you put him first? Do you keep the Sabbath for him? Worshiping God is about making him first in our lives. So let's move from worship to evangelism or, or witnessing. Jesus told his disciples that they were his plan to take his message to the rest of the world. 
the message of the good news of salvation. And so in Matthew 28, we read these words. He says to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This commissioning that Jesus gave to his disciples in the first century is a commissioning that he's given to every generation of disciples since then. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you became a, dis, a, a commissioned follower of Jesus. You became his witness. And scripture tells us that he will give you the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in him to be his witness so you're not doing this alone. Think this through. If you're his witness because you believe in him, how would you grade your witness? Are you a good witness or are you a poor witness? Are you an A witness or a C witness or an F witness? How would you grade your witness? Scripture tells us that we're supposed to be prepared. We're supposed to be always prepared to, to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason that you have hope in Jesus. You know, I think of the man who was born blind that Jesus healed. He reached out to Jesus. Jesus saw him, had compassion on him. He healed him of his blindness. And when the Pharisees came along, they wanted to persecute Jesus because he healed this man on the Sabbath. And so they came to the man and they interrogated him and they said, is Jesus a sinner? He couldn't answer that question. He didn't know. He said, I, I don't know, but this is what I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. Do you see what a witness does? In a court of law, if you're called to testify as a witness in a case, you're going to tell the judge what you saw and what you experienced. So if, if you've experienced Jesus in your life, if you've come to faith in him, if you've seen that he is the living Lord and Savior, you can say, this is the way I was before I saw Jesus and believed in him, and this is who I am now and how he's changed my life because I've seen him and I believe in him. You're a witness. And people want to hear that. They, they want to know why you believe in Jesus. They want to know why you believe the Bible. They want to know why you go to church. They want to know why your life is lived differently because of who you have a relationship with, Jesus Christ. And truthfully, you're saying, I'm a witness by the way I live is a cop-out. That, that, that's just should be standard operating procedure. If we're going to live our lives in worship, then the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we speak, the way we live needs to be God-honoring. So everybody should say, wow, you live differently. They should. But they need to hear, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. If you're not telling people, you're not witnessing. And we're all called to do that. So what kind of witness are you? 
From evangelism, let's move to generosity. Jesus made it very clear that one of the biggest issues for, the fo for his followers was how they handled worldly wealth. In fact, Jesus points out that the biggest competitor to his followers' allegiance was money. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said you can't. You'll be duplicitous. You'll, you'll be double-minded. You can't have two allegiances. You'll be divided. Now, it's interesting to note that in Jesus' day, and even before Jesus' day, people struggled with this whole idea because these people, and Jesus lived in a time where giving generously to God was expected. The minimal amount of giving was considered to be the tithe for the practicing follower of God in, Ju in Jerusalem. It started with 10% and then went up. Some writers have said it even went up to as much as 27% of their income. And their income may have been what it may have been gold or silver, but it may have been their crops, their harvest, or their or their flocks. And they struggled with it. It's no different today. And, and actually, it was no different before Jesus. In, in ancient Israel, it, it was no different because God spoke to the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel because they were struggling with just the tithe, just the 10%. And God spoke to them and said, listen, trust me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Trust me and test me. This is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, trust me and test me and see if I don't bless you for your faithfulness. Do you trust God with your, with your life, with your provision, with your income, with your retirement? You trust him enough to tithe? He says, test me on it. This is from God, not from me. He says, test me and see if I won't bless you. So I encourage you, trust God. Start managing your worldly wealth, not according to your ideas, but according to God's word. Trust him. Trust him. Who do you trust in more? Your 401k or God? Who are you going to trust in? Let me conclude with this thought. If you've been paying attention to uh, world news, I think there was a little wedding yesterday, right? Yeah. Anybody watch the wedding yesterday? Come on. Don't be embarrassed. I watched it. No, I'll be honest. I watched it. Um, I watched a show later in the day that sort of summed up a lot of what's happened in the world with Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry. And it was fascinating. Um, Meghan Markle, a commoner, an American, married into the royal family to Prince Harry. She went from living a life like most of us to now stepping into a, a new world and a new culture 
unlike anything you or I can ever imagine. You know, she's now a granddaughter-in-law of the Queen of England. She has to learn how to curtsy the right way. Um, there's a lot of criticism that way. She said this in one of her interviews early on when she and Harry were serious. She goes, uh, somebody asked her, how do you deal with the criticism? She goes, I, I stopped reading the good and the bad. I just stopped reading everything. But, but what I was fascinated with was this. The things that she gave up, um, she gave up her career as an actress to marry Prince Harry. She had a blog. I guess it was rather popular. She, she ended her blog. She gave up social media. Some of you would say, I can't do that. Others would say, yes, hallelujah. Um, she was someone known for wearing fashionable things in the style of our country, some of it quite provocative. She's still very fashionable in what she wears, but it's not provocative according to the world. She's had to learn a whole new set of etiquette. You know, you and I know manners, but we don't know um, the etiquette that goes with being a part of the royal family or being around the Queen of England. Her life has changed, and she's fully committed to it. Why? Because of love. Because she fell in love. I mean, isn't this every young girl's dream to fall in love with a prince and have him come and whisk her away and she becomes a princess? Now they're husband and wife. Duke and Duchess. Part of the royal family. I, I find it so amazing that in the New Testament, this idea of marriage becomes a metaphor for Jesus' relationship with us, the church. And he's referred to as the bridegroom and we're collectively referred to as the bride. Why? Because there's this amazing love relationship where Jesus says, I love you so much that I would die on a cross for you. I would give my life for my bride. And in the scriptures, we see that the bride needs to love the bridegroom in the same way. You know, following Jesus can be challenging. He gives us some hard sayings, some hard commands, some, some things that are non-negotiable. But that's the way he loves us non-negotiable love. He said, you know what? I will crawl on a cross and be willingly executed so that these people will become sons and daughters of God and they will know God in a personal way and not only have eternal life, but will have a relationship with me and the Father as long as they are alive on earth and in heaven. He did that for love. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to decide, what will we do for love? What will we surrender? Meghan Markle surrendered a lot for love. 
Jesus calls us to surrender a lot for, for love of him, obedience for him, following him, but he promises us to bless us with more than we could ever imagine so that what we surrendered pales in comparison to what we gain in him. This morning, we're going to sing a song. It's a hymn, I Surrender All. And, and it gives us the opportunity to, to, to sing words about surrender and mean it and to even de demonstrate it by holding our palms open or our hands uplifted in a sign of surrender to say, Jesus, I surrender all to you. Guide me, lead me, direct me in a relationship with you so that I can be the man, the woman that you want me to be. So would you stand with me if you're able? And would you sing this song and surrender yourself to Jesus? Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.